0: I have to tell you, I began to pray about what God wanted me to speak on through this next year, and a lot of times I 'll do a bunch of different series of five to six weeks in length, but I felt like God said, "Speak on the book of Exodus." I had no idea that we would be at kind of the critical point of a virus outbreak, and we would be on this eighth plague. I had no idea um, what was happening and is happening around us would actually allow for us to feel, in a sense, what's going on back in Egypt some 1,500 years or so, um, 2,000 years or so before uh, the coming of Christ. And so I'm just going to ask us to pray. And remember, as I heard someone say, the future is as bright as the promises of God. Let's pray. One of the great promises that you give us is the Lord, you are our shepherd. In you we lack nothing. And you have told us that when dark valleys come and as we walk through them, you are with us. We need not fear. And so God, we place our trust, our confidence, and even our fear um, in recognizing who you are and not in what we see going around us. We recognize you as a God who is full of mercy and grace and love, and you are also full of truth that calls us to think again and to understand what it means to live in your presence and in the presence of other people. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. So I kind of prayed that last line. It hit me um, as I've been thinking about this. You know, we're doing this and we're all standing so far apart. We have a meeting, we're all stand apart. It's just so unnatural. It's not the way... That God created us to live. This even social distancing, which we are, it's necessary to do. I mean, God didn't create us to live like that. And um, as we look at this message today, the the primary point in 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 this in this part of the message is the sovereignty of God, which is an important part of it. But the thing I want to bring out is the pride. The pride of Pharaoh, the pride of even his officials and pride of even people in the land of Egypt and their pride in God's idols, others than the God who truly is God. And about a God who graciously calls a people, not because of merit or anything they've done, but graciously works with his people, shelters them in this difficult time and brings them out so that all people always would know there is a God. No matter whether you stand in pride against him or whether you humble your hearts, there is one God And one route is better than the other. And, and, and what I want you to notice is pride hurts. It doesn't hurt just you. It often hurts many other people. So take a moment and just think about pride and, and the pain that has been caused by maybe another person's pride in your own life. Someone who, um, proudfully ignored you or proudfully judged you or in some sense of pride, um, isolated you or betrayed you. You can, it's really easy, I think, often to think about how proud uh, people have pained us. But it's sometimes difficult to think about, what about my pride? How does it hurt others? The pride that gets in the way of relationships all the time because in pride, it doesn't just hurt others, it really hurts yourself because it, it, it actually breaks and cuts off relationship. It, it causes not just social distancing, but a heart distancing and a spiritual distancing. The, the whole need to be right if you're in that place, even in a marriage situation or in another relationship with a friend, and you need to be right. You just need to be right. Or you're unwilling to ask for forgiveness. You know how hard that is to say, you know, I'm just going to, You know, own up. I'm not going to give a a but or help you understand why. I'm just going to own up and tell you I hurt you and I would ask that you'd forgive me. There's all kinds of ways that we are proud and we can hurt people. You can do it through reckless driving. You can do it by ignoring what medical world is telling us around this virus and and say who cares and, and go out and not think a thing about it. And not change any of your habits. You can do this by experiencing this. Maybe you've experienced it. Someone, um, you had an award, but in pride they didn't share that with you. There's just so many ways pride can hurt us. And I kept thinking, what is Pharaoh thinking? Does he understand how much pain, his obstinate unwillingness, this stance and posture of pride is causing His people. And what I find is amazing is that in spite of the pride, God mercifully, time and again and again and again, continues to come to him, giving him opportunity to think again. To rethink is what the word repent means. With your mind to look at things and to really examine your strategy or approach in this situation or in your life. The prophet Ezekiel at one point comes to the people of Israel who have been oppressively hurting their own people, neglecting the poor, all kinds of injustice, all kinds of pride within the religious leaders. They weren't sharing the truth. They were, you know, speaking so people would feel good about themselves and things such as that. And and Ezekiel comes and he gives this incredible message of judgment. And and you go, wow, God's an angry, mean God. He isn't. Because a, a couple times in Ezekiel... He'll, he'll make this statement. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, rethink, and live. I, I don't get a lot of joy out of causing pain in people's lives. And reality is that a lot of the pain isn't God directly doing it. It's really the direct consequences of our own choices. And God has set up the world in such a way that those choices will bring about pain and that pain is to bring about a change of mind in our hearts. So here we are. We're, we're we're we've seen a demonstration before any kind of pain is inflicted on the people. Moses demonstrates by having his staff become a snake, and that magicians do the same. That snake eats that, the, the snakes of of Pharaoh, which is a a way of saying our God is greater. You should get the picture here. He doesn't get it, so he gives them in the first three plagues: this economic sanctions to try and get their attention. Pharaoh continues to go on his way, and so do the leaders and the magicians, until the last one, when the magicians go, this seems to be the finger of a god. It's beyond us. And then we go to the next ones, and, and what we find in, in the plagues of four through six is is there's this um, declaration of war. God's saying, the economic sanctions don't seem to be getting your attention, so now I will go ahead and declare war. So you have this declaration of war, and now we come to the seventh plague, the one that we had last week, and he said, I will give you the full force, now I'm unleashing everything. And, and they, he unleashes hail, which destroys about uh, half of their crops. And we come to this eighth one. And the pride of Pharaoh is literally killing his people. And his stubborn refusal to listen to God is destroying everything. His pride does that. His pride does that. So we come to Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. And and what you find here is it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. It starts here, and you see again, the initiative is God's. God isn't just going to let him keep going. He wants Pharaoh to come to grips with his pride. And, and, and so he comes to him, and this is the, the third of the three plagues. So there's three sets of three. We are now at this point where he has started the, the full force of his attack. And, and, and so as he starts at in the seventh, now he comes to the eighth. And the eighth one is going to unleash a decimation throughout all of Egypt. In fact, it it talks about rune. And so as we get to this, the second plague in this cycle is always interesting. The first, fourth, and seventh always begin with get up early in the morning, go to the river, confront, take a stand before Pharaoh, before this Nile River god. And then now they come to the second one. The second one in the cycle is often our, um, each one of them is that he goes to to the court of Pharaoh. And so that's what he goes to. He says, go to his officials, go to the court, meet with him there. But this time, in these verses, God gives some additional information that he hasn't done in others. And and he begins by saying, I've hardened his heart. We have seen through the first um, six plagues, it always says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now it is to such a point that God hardens his heart. There's three different words in these uh, plagues for hardened. This one is the idea to make heavy or to be heavy or unyielding. And it suggests the idea that there's a slowness in response to external stimuli. So the idea is God now is hardening his heart to get on with things. To, to bring an end to this. Because he knows that the heart of Pharaoh will no longer respond to any external stimuli. But he's hoping As we saw in the last plague, that the people, the officials and the people of Egypt will respond, that they will go ahead and and follow him, and even gives them opportunities, we'll see later in this story, to follow Israel out of Egypt. So this is kind of a judicial sentence, and these added plagues show the stubbornness of Pharaoh. His continued stubborn unresponsiveness justifies the judgment that is finally leveled against Pharaoh and against all those who will not humbly bow before God who refuse to rethink the consequences of their choices. And the main one here for Pharaoh is that he's going to be boss of his life. <laughs> God, you don't have room in my, in my heart. The second thing that he brings up is the purpose of these plagues is that I may perform these signs of mine among them and tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians. And I'll just run through this quickly because we'll talk about it at the end. God wants you... He wants us to tell our children and our grandchildren the works of God. He wanted Moses, in a sense, it's a singular word. He says, I'm going to do this, which he does in the book of Exodus. And then you are to do that for each of your kids from from now on. They are going to look at these plagues, and they're going to look at this um, going through the Red Sea, and they're going to see my greatness, and not more than that, my grace and mercy and my love. Think about it. When When you think about it in this way, God's point is, was all people would see just how powerless and helpless Pharaoh was before God. And I was thinking as I was writing this, even today, just, I mean, we have a coronavirus go through. I, I drive here and there's, there's, there's no people on the road hardly. And I, I just go how quickly and how, how powerless and helpless we feel. I mean, you can have all kinds of plans. I had plans to go away and, and take some vacation. Anything you had is, is, is all since shut down. God exposed the pride and their empty arrogance. He wanted to see how powerless and helpless he was. We go on and we're, we're told here in Exodus chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. So Moses And Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your parents or your ancestors have ever seen from the day they settled in this land till now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. And the words are kind of a, a unique combination. It's like he turned his back. It's kind of like, He's standing there in upset because Pharaoh's still stubborn stance. He just turns his back on him in a sense of anger, in a sense of he cannot believe that still Pharaoh will hold his pride. There's another unique element here in the Hebrew, and it's the rhetorical question. It's really unique in the entire Old Testament. It says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? One commentator says, when individuals or groups willingly acknowledge God's sovereignty, not in a general way, but over them, they assume their proper position and role in created order. When people do not acknowledge the one true God as their own Lord, however, they are in rebellion against the very nature, their very nature, and eventually must forcibly be taught who is boss. There's this idea that pride will bring a fall. It's just the way God set it up in this world God's in charge. He's going to set the people free. Pharaoh doesn't hold a chance, doesn't stand a chance to stand up to him. The only question is this, how long? And that's really true. In any person in a place of pride, um, there's a sense of how long? How long? you, You may have lived with someone or you may have... Um, parents or kids or people you know, and, you, and your question is how long? And, and God's question might be to you right now in the place that you're at, in in a place where you know that his relationships are being cut off, or or you're finding your your pride is hurting, and He's just asking how long? How long? Verses four through six describe the severity of the next plague. Uh, the word locust is really, again, a, a different kind of word. It's a locust swarm. The prior f- plague of hail devastated half the crop, the flax and barley, which came to your head around January, February. Well, the next group of crop that would come would be their cash crop of wheat. And and again, all throughout records in the Middle East, all the way up to the time of, of Rome and, and when they were in power, um, it, there's notes and records of how they were the breadbasket. Egypt was the breadbasket of the world. So this is going to actually bring about total ruin. The hail is one punch, and now this is like a one-two punch and knocks them out. It's total ruin. There's economic collapse, there's been diseases, and now there's famine. And I was thinking about this. Um, there's this almost this move from the way creation works to now he's Decreating, deconstructing seems what God is doing. And I was, I, this is a thought, you know, could it be that far more infect, infectious than this viral disease underlying everything in this world is a spiritual sense of humility that causes all things to work together? Could it be that when our pride as God's people made in his image as a people gets to such a degree it is like a virus that spreads that, that begins to decreate and deconstruct all that God created I, I, was, I was thinking about that What if God has created the world in such a way that we are really this tight organism and then we're beginning to see it more and more that that has impact on each other and one of the things that is, we don't even see, but God is trying to call us to attention is when pride gets to a certain place, things fall. Well, Exodus chapter 10, verse 7, Pharaoh's officials said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? And there's a growing dissent now in Pharaoh's court. The magicians are saying it's the hand of, you know, it's the finger of God. Now his officials who stand around them are asking a how long question. The how long, because they can't say it to Pharaoh. It's kind of like, how long, get this guy out of here can't be direct with a boss who doesn't want to hear anything, so you got to somehow come about it in some indirect way. Because in their mind, they're grasping that Pharaoh was slower to grasp, but was actually happening. Egypt was being ruined. Pharaoh was probably in his pampered state, still getting food, still getting all these things. Maybe once in a while took a trip around to see what's happening, but he wasn't experiencing it. They were beginning to experience it, and so were others. And there's these words... Um, this managed to become a snare to us. The idea a snare is a trap that is used, usually like a tripwire to catch a small animal, or it can be a, 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 a net that captures a bird. And the idea a snare lures you in and then traps you. There's a hint of accusation that's going on here with Pharaoh's officials. They're pointing out to Pharaoh that his initial assessment of Moses wasn't quite right. In fact, maybe he's been lured in, and the trap has been set and and you could stop it now if you chose to. And I thought about that. Did we ever do that? You know how our pride lures us into situations where we get trapped? And you may be in a situation like that right now. And God is calling you to, to, to repent, to humble yourself. And he's saying, how long? What you think isn't that big of a deal at first becomes a major issue. You find yourself trapped. What began with just a few white lies now are wholesale lies to keep your face and save face. Or maybe what was just an office friendship that had some emotional energy to it now is turning into something that you had never thought it would get to. Or you had some resentment and there are just seeds of resentment in your heart, but you've nursed it and you've watered it and you continue to let it grow and it's now full-blown to bitterness. And it's destroying you. And it destroys others. Exodus 10, 8-9 Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh Go worship the Lord your God, he said But tell me uh, Tell me who will be going And Moses answered, well, well, you know All of us, young and old, and sons and daughters And we'll take the flocks and herds Because we're going to celebrate a festival of the Lord And Pharaoh is now listening to his advisors, and he's going, okay, okay, you're right, maybe it's just a little worship festival, and so if it's just a worship festival, we'll do just like they do in Egypt, because in Egypt, it was just the men that needed to go to these festivals. What he didn't understand is that God was not a God of just the male race, or male gender. He was a God of, of men, women, and children. When he had festivals, everybody won. Think about it. As, as the festivals were taking place in Jerusalem years later, Moses, uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus would all pack up with all his brothers and sisters, and everyone would go, because, because God calls worship out of every heart. There's little kids, as we've said before, don't have a junior Holy Spirit. They have the whole mature Holy Spirit, and Pharaoh didn't understand that, and so as you come to Exodus chapter 10, verses 10 through 11, Pharaoh said, Lord be with you if, if I let you go, along with your women and children. Clearly, you're bent on evil. No. Have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you've been asking for. And then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh isn't giving them permission. He's being sarcastic here. Uh, uh, Essentially, here's what he's saying. The Lord would have to be with you if you think you're going to take men, women, and children. You're not going to take them into the desert. It's quite clear this isn't just some little three-day festival. You're, You're planning on leaving. And in, in some translations, the NIV has a little footnote because it could easily be translated this way at the very end. Be careful, trouble's in store for you. In a sense, don't forget, I still have my military. And Pharaoh's adamant. He's enraged. He says, no, you're, not, you're just taking men. That's all you need to do. He's thinking from an Egyptian standpoint. And he's obviously a rattled man who's putting on a show of strength Because he's no longer, I think, sure about his power. So you come to Exodus 10, 12 through 15. As I read this, I have highlighted um, the the words here. So you can see just how persuasive and extensive this plague is. Uh, The locusts are truly a knockout punch. And, And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand so that... The locusts swarm over uh, and devour. Uh, I, I had it. Okay, it should be everything. Just look at these words. Growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt and the Lord and made the east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again the covered all the ground until it was black or dark, which kind of is an ominous foreshadowing of the next plague of darkness. They devoured, the word in black or dark there is the same as the word darkness in the next plague. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on the tree and plants in all the land of Egypt. This is, this is so extensive and so pervasive. It was total defeat. Now, you have to understand, locusts are, are merely grasshoppers. And grasshoppers don't sound like such a bad word. Um, but in in the Middle East, in these areas, they actually hatch and grow in sandy soil where these grasshopper eggs are deposited. And instead of a survival rate of a few per thousand, they survive by thousands per thousands. And they're so close to each other that they rub each other, and this is what scientists will tell you, that they rub off the green. So these grasshoppers become brown, military-looking machines. I um, received... An email from a friend who is asking for prayer in Kenya, and they sent a picture. And there are uh, their missionaries over in Kenya, and I'm going to if you can show the picture. They um, they talk about the locusts that are coming. That's a picture of it. It's the kind of thing that it looked like in that day, in the larval stage as they are growing, and, and, and they're rubbing away that green, um, they grow to such a mass that um, they, it, it's, it's said that, according to the summer of 2004, a number of areas in West Africa was devastated by a locust plague, they carried. Uh, they were carried by wind, allowing them to travel 60 miles per day. And the UN Food and Agriculture Organization reported that they measured a density of 200,000 insects per acre. There were a number of serious traffics, traffic accidents. They were caused due to the blinding darkness of these invaders. And they reported that the locusts traveled in swarms containing billions of insects. That's a picture of what's going on. The full force of God's plagues had been released. Exodus ten sixteen through seventeen. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron, and said, "I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to trade this deadly, uh, to take this deadly plague away from me." the The text implies that it was the the Pharaoh was in panic. That's the, the word "quickly" is that he was panicked. And he, you can almost see him saying to his servants go now find that guy and when he comes he admits he says I've sinned again which is a superficial confession it's not the word where you sinned in sorrow for um, the pain he had caused others it was more the idea again forgive me get me out of this predicament now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me And then, um, Moses in verse 18 through 20, he left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong West wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt, but he hardened Pharaoh's heart, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go. I just want to share with you a, a few practical things just to think about. And especially in this time. And, um. One of these, as I was driving to church, came to me. It comes right out of this passage. Pray to the Lord. There are, there are practical ways that you can um, begin to move into a posture of humility. And the first is simply this. Bend your knee in prayer. Whatever situation and whatever the consequences are that you might be facing, whatever's going on, um, bend your knee in prayer. What I find interesting in, in this passage is that Pharaoh is asking Moses, would you bend your knee in prayer before me would you would you bend your knee in prayer and and what is interesting is um, there are people around us right now who um, you can just say I'm praying for you they need your prayer there is anxiety and fear like never before and prayer is incredibly powerful there's a lot of people feeling small and helpless and and, and totally powerless and prayer is how we actively demonstrate humility and one of the things I want us as a congregation to know is it's really true your intercession matters I'm going to ask us to pray We're, we're, we're meeting at noon from noon to 1230 here you don't come here but on the live stream you could join us and I think there's lots of churches that are bending their knee in prayer right now how do you avoid the pain of pride? Bend your knee in prayer. Pray for others. And another one, and I'll just kind of go through this quickly, is bow your, your, kind of your head and your heart before God. So if you're bending your knee, if you think of the postures, you're saying, God, okay, I'm going to bend my knee before you. Now you bow your head. You bow your head and your heart. Symbolically, your head is a symbol of your heart. The, the way that you humble yourself is to basically say, God, I'm not going to be the boss of me anymore. I want you to be the boss of me every moment, every day of my life. So you bow before God. There's a couple practical ways that you can do this and be wise. Um, one is just look at the consequences of your own choices right now. Are there ones where you are you realize it's causing pain? Bow before God. And another one is is rather practical as well. Bow before God. Pay attention to the counsel of friends. Proverbs 13.10 says this, Wisdom opens the heart to receive wise counsel, but prize closes your ears to advice. Um, one of the things that you find in this passage is that again and again trusted people, his magicians, and now his court officials keep coming to Pharaoh and speaking to his ear and in one of the ways you can actually practically bow your head and your life and say god you 're the boss. is there a people around you who might be coming and giving wise counsel, but are you willing to listen uh, I got this from someone this week uh, it it 's from this guy, I don't know, Brigid Delaney, I don't know who he is, but it says, in an unsettling reversal of my teenage years, I'm now yelling at my parents for going out. Well, I I got that from one of my kids. Um, Who are you listening to? Have you been warned? Have others spoken into your life? Bow before God. Pay attention to the conviction of your own heart. And I just say, when you feel the conviction of God, when you see and uh, feel in your heart the Holy Spirit saying, hey, don't judge. Um, don't say that. Don't try and justify it. Just stop and go, okay, I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to lie. I'm not, Whatever it is, he just says stop. And bow your head before God. And the last is this boast about God. Now, I think this is incredibly important because there's this posture of bending your knee, there's bowing your head, but there's also this posture that goes, I want people to know how incredible this God is because when he says tell your children, the the words actually are recount in the ears of. It's like passing oral tradition down. And it's kind of an unusual expression. It's the idea of telling stories. You tell this story. And one of the things that we can do, I really believe are important right now in this time of crisis, is to begin to praise God for things he's doing and talk about those things and let people know how God is at work. I had a, uh, uh, um, a young mom who was expecting... Who was going through a difficult time trying to decide whether they should go into work and and, uh, and and they were trying to figure out what to do and in their heart they felt like they should stay home and they called in they were afraid they could lose their job and and said they're they going to stay home and, and everybody has to do this for their own sake, but in the midst of it, they got called a couple of days you know, later and and their boss said to them, "We are so um, we are so committed to you and we are so thrilled with what you do here. We're going to work however we can to keep you on for 30 days. And that person was just going, God, I thank you for that answer and has shared that. That's one of those things you can't help tell other people. Uh, another one in, in, in my own life is a story of, of my own great-grandmother. Um, I used to, in my college days, I would go to my grandmother's house and she would tell me stories of how God had worked in their life. And she'd tell me one specifically of her mother, who at a time, she didn't, she didn't follow um, Jesus with her life in any way, but she ended up contracting Parkinson's and had other complications, was shut in. And in that time, she started reading God's word. And in that time, one verse stood out to her that she claimed to be her life verse. It's Psalm 119, verse 71. And it's the words, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn from your decrees. And what's so incredible about that is God in that time got a hold of her life and it impacted my grandmother's life and impacted my father's life and has impacted my life. It was one of those that changed the very trajectory of our family. It's one of those stories that I have, I have in that verse, in my Bible underlined just saying great grandma's verse. There's a whole bunch of other things that I could tell you. I just want to I want to close with this last story because it's there are stories of signs and wonders and and um, this is one that I just think is is um it's so close to my heart. And it's one my father shared with us and he didn't share this one a lot. And I sometimes wonder if it wasn't kind of a, 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 there was a holiness about it because of how it impacted his life. It's like, you know, um, leave a tender moment alone kind of thing. But, um, but I have to boast about God's goodness. And we need to boast about God's goodness. Tell your children and your children's children. Tell the people around you what God is doing. Continue to point to God in this time. Well, I, I, I there's those times where you have these signs and wonders. There's these kind of crossing the Red Sea or defeating a giant kind of thing. My father, at a certain point in his life, he became the president of Trinity Seminary. And there was a college that was attached to it that had gone independent. And at a certain point, it was financially in such difficulty that the um, free church asked the school, and my father specifically with the board, to take on Trinity College and and to basically inherit and assume its debt. And so he had worked for quite some time to try and get the thing solvent and and, and together. This was back in the 1980s. And he did everything he could. Um, And then one day, the bank president called him into his office. And this property was really great property, right on the expressway, expensive property. And he just said to my father, you either need to raise... I can't remember any millions of dollars was. You need to raise this or we're going to foreclose. And my, my dad had a certain amount of time to raise the money for this school before it was foreclosed. And he did all that he could and with other people and they raised everything. They raised everything but $150,000. And it's on Friday. The next Monday was going to be the foreclosure of the bank president. He was supposed to come in. And my dad... Having done all that he could, he had one hundred fifty thousand dollars. It weighed heavy on him, and he looked at his schedule. He knew he was preaching at a church that Sunday. That church was somewhere either in Kansas or Nebraska. It it wasn't a free church, and he was kind of wrestling his heart, saying, "God, why, why, um, why would you have this schedule that I'd speak at this church? I can't even really talk much about what's going on, and even resolve that he wouldn't." So he goes to the church that Sunday. He preaches to this small. Um, Methodist Church, I believe it was, and um, before he gets up, the pastor said to him, my father, I, "I sense that your heart's heavy. Um, you, would you be willing? To, you want to share that with us?" And so my father just shared about the fact that there was one hundred fifty thousand dollars that needed to be raised, and laid that out and just as, as quickly as he could, and then went on with the message. He finished the message, and um, as he went down at the end, of it, a, a man came up to him and and he grabbed his hand, and said, "I so appreciate what you had to say." and kind of sneakily tucked in his hand was a check, and so my dad took the check and put it in his suit pocket, and he kept walking now and talked to some others and came to the back of the sanctuary, and there was another man who was waiting for him, and that man shook his hand and put his hand on his shoulders and gave him a folded check, and my dad took that check and put it in his suit pocket, and he was about to leave to go out to the parking lot. Most everybody had left, and he thought, you know, I'm going to go to the restroom. Not that he needed to. He just wanted to look at the two checks. He opens up the one check, folded one, and there's $50,000. He looks at the other one, it's $50,000, and he's going, God, that's a hundred. But his mind was still going, I still have $50,000. I've exhausted every avenue I could. What can I do about this? And as he's walking to the car, he has a rental car, and in that time in a small town, anybody knew that was your car, so that, guy standing there and this guy who was standing there he could tell he was a rancher he was dressed that way He kind of talked to him that way he said pastor preacher so appreciate the work of this school i so appreciate this message and all that you've done he and, he and he said to him he said you know i'd like to be able to help and give some money but i don't have it with me right now i don't have it but i i could possibly wire it on monday morning um to whatever bank and my dad said yeah i'll be at the bank the moment it opens please wire it and 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 then he said to him and Do you mind me asking how much? And the guy said, uh, $50,000. You need to know your God is a God of the land of Goshen. And he's a God who will come through for you. He loves you. And he loves the work that he wants to do in and through us. We need to bend our knee and pray. We need to bow our heads and say, God, this is, this is your life you've given me. And we need to start boasting about how good God is. Not insensitively, but in a way that tells people, this God loves you, he's for you.